Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and thank you for listening to our podcast. This is episode 75 of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Fiji. Clear tropical waters, white sandy beaches, wide friendly smiles. Is that what came to your mind when I said Fiji? Well, in this episode, we visit Fiji not as tourists, but through the experiences of Dr. Moira Rush, who was based there for three months as the Australian Society of Anesthetists Pacific Fellow. The Australian Society of Anesthetists has been involved in the training of anesthetists in Fiji and the Pacific since the early 1980s. That's 40 years. And one of the ways that the ASA supports training there is through our various fellowship positions. I'll talk more about these at the end of the episode, so do hang around if you're interested. But for now, let's set off on an adventure with Dr. Moira Rush. Thank you for joining me today and talking about your travels and adventures in Fiji. Thank you for having me. That's all right. So I just want to go back and I know you've done so much developing country work over the years, but I really want to focus today on your Pacific Fellowship. Yes. So you just recently spent three months in Fiji at the end of 2022. When did you first start thinking about going? So the fellowship, something I've wanted to do for quite a long time, mostly because I've wanted to work overseas for longer than the sort of one or two week stints that I've done in the past. But anything longer than that probably wasn't ever going to fit in with work and family. But prior to the pandemic, it looked like it was going to work both from a personal and a work point of view. And so I contacted Justin to see whether I would even be an appropriate candidate to apply because, as you're aware, I'm not a fellow (laughs) and haven't been and haven't been a fellow for quite a long time. I sat my exams in 2007, my anaesthetic exams. As people might not know, Justin is Justin Burke, who is the person who oversees the Pacific Fellowship for ODEC. That's right. And I also have a pain fellowship and I sat that exam in 2014. I was hoping that maybe that would be useful as well and he agreed that it was reasonable that I apply and that it wasn't specifically for fellows, which I must admit I hadn't really appreciated. That's a really good point. It's called the Pacific Fellowship. It's not actually just for provisional fellows. Yes, as he pointed out, you didn't have to just be in your fellow year, although traditionally that is who applies. So he seemed to think it was a reasonable option and I did apply. But as as everybody knows, (laughs) the world shut down at the beginning of 2020 and there were no fellows in 2020 or 2021. So you applied before the pandemic? I did. That's correct. Yes. So I think it must have been 2019. Yes, it was. I know it seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only 2019. I know, doesn't it? Yes. And in terms of being at that particular stage where it was right for work and family, where are you? What stage are you at work and what stage are you with family? So I've been a consultant anaesthetist now for 13 years and I've been a pain specialist for the last seven years. I did all my training in Sydney and worked for a few years at Westmead Hospital and then came to Melbourne and I've been at the Northern since 2012. My family, I have two boys. One is now 21, turning 22 this year. 
gosh, that happened quickly. <laughs> yes, time goes very, very quickly. And my youngest is 15, turning 16 this year. So he's in year 10. So back in 2019, when you were thinking of applying, they were both in high school. That's correct. Yes. And happily settled at school. Yes. As happily as you can be as a teenager. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and so you felt like this is an okay time to take from your work. And you've ticked off your big items in terms of what you wanted to practice in terms of anesthesia and pain medicine. And this was a good time to take that little mini break from your career and your family because it was it's three months altogether, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So I was there from the beginning of September till the beginning of December. So yes, that's a reasonable chunk of time. And actually, initially, we'd thought that it would be possible that all, maybe not four of us, my eldest son sat his year 12 exams in 2019. And so I knew that he would have finished by the time I went and he may not be interested in coming, but we thought it was going to be possible to take our younger son and potentially have him supervised by my husband to do some work over there, maybe, (laughs) and just take him out of school for a couple of months, which Mm. again, we thought would be doable. But as it turned out, it wasn't a choice that we were able to make. And then when it became clear that I'd be able to go in 2022, our circumstances had changed considerably and it wasn't going to be possible for us all to go. So I ended up going on my own for three months and I left the family behind in Melbourne. Knowing what you do know now, and maybe you didn't look into schools and what other things there were for kids to do in Fiji, but do you think that might be an option for people in the future who want to either bring their children over whilst they're still at school or, like you were suggesting, perhaps pull them out of school and find some other things for them to do? I think so. I had a fantastic time for lots of different reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about later. I think that both both children, or even just if one had have come, and my husband would have got a lot out of the experience as well. And my husband was really keen, but as I say, there were other circumstances around his work that meant that by 2022, it wasn't possible for him to take the three months off. So yes, I think given the right circumstances, it would be an amazing opportunity to take older children. I know that a lot of people take their younger children and spend the three months with their families, but I still think it's, it would be possible to take older children as well. So when did you get the go-ahead to go to Fiji? It was close to the beginning of 2022. I don't remember the exact dates, actually, but it was around the beginning of 2022. You had a good sort of six to nine months to start getting things ready. Yes, that's right. And it meant that I was able to negotiate with my boss around dates that were going to work for him at the department and they're also going to work for me and my family. And actually that part of it was relatively straightforward. I was lucky enough to be able to take sabbatical leave for the three months. The Northern Hospital, which is where I'm a staff specialist, approved sabbatical leave. So I was very grateful for that because I wasn't entirely sure how all of that was going to work. And what are some of the things in that lead up that are running through your mind in terms of how to prepare yourself for going over? It's interesting. Lots of things when you think they sound like a great idea and when they're slightly abstract, you think, I'm sure it'll all be fine. It'll all work out. But as time moves on and, and it becomes confirmed, then I suddenly thought, okay, I'm sure it'll be fine. I really hope I'm doing the right thing. Mostly because it was clear then that I had to go on my own. David, my husband, had started a new job and, as I say, my younger son was in year nine 
and it just wasn't going to be possible for us to go. I thought there's a lot that I need to do here, a lot of things I need to organise. And I haven't worked in Fiji specifically. I have worked in other parts of the Pacific, but I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to find when I went there. And I was, even though the role is relatively well set out through the ASA, and Justin provides quite a lot of information, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. And I wasn't exactly sure how my skills were going to be useful and how I would use them to the best advantage, both for me and for the trainees who were going to be my primary focus. Mm -hmm. So before you even left, you were already told that you're going to be looking after the trainees. That's correct. Yes. And you had obviously to prepare your family and your workplace, your Australian workplace for your trip over. Yes. And what about in terms of logistics of getting over things like where you're going to live, paperwork, that sort of thing? Yes. (laughs) We're laughing because we know. (laughs) Yes, as you know, very challenging. The paperwork side of it was difficult and even though I started the process quite early, the communication with the contacts in Fiji was, I found it difficult to negotiate, knowing exactly what they wanted and when they wanted it. That proved to be quite difficult and as it turned out, I got my work visa only very close to when I left Australia, which was quite stressful because obviously I needed a visa to get into the country. And my registration didn't come through until a week and a half after I arrived. That's common. That has not changed in 10, 15 years. No, that's correct. It hasn't changed. And I suppose this is the first time when I've been away previously, I've been very lucky in that someone else has taken care of all of that. So this is the first time I've had to really go through the process myself. Uh, It was very difficult, but we got there in the end. And I had lots of help from Meg Wormsley, who's currently working in Fiji at the Colonial War Memorial Hospital in Suva. So having her as a contact was invaluable. Mm, I bet. Things like accommodation, I wasn't able to arrange anything before I left, So I organised some temporary accommodation and in the end sought that out once I was there, which was much better trying to follow through on emails and get people to respond and finding out exactly what was available when and where. For short term, at least three months isn't Mm. very long. Mm. That was basically impossible. I couldn't do it. So it was much easier to organise something temporary and then finalise things once I was there. Great. Because I had no registration, I couldn't work. I could be in theatre but I couldn't work. So I had time to sort it out. Yeah, okay. That's good. And in terms of temporary accommodation, you're talking hotels and things like that? Yeah, so I ended up booking something through Airbnb. Oh, good. Yes, which was fantastic and actually Suva is a very small place, as you probably remember, and Mm. the people I ended up staying with knew people who knew people that I was working with. And so very quickly there was a sort of a little social network that I didn't have to work at all to to establish. So that was lovely. That was completely coincidental, but that worked out really well. Fantastic. That's a big bonus. And then in terms of longer term, so three months, were you able to rent a house? So I ended up renting an apartment through, and actually Meg had a contact, a woman who helps people get established in Fiji, specifically in Fiji, helps them with things like accommodation, 
I didn't end up getting her, but one of her colleagues helped me and she was fantastic. Took me around to a few places, helped negotiate with landlords. Oh, that's so good. These things can make such a big difference when you're relocating. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I haven't had to rent for a very long time. Yes, I've forgotten how difficult it can be. So she was very helpful. So you land in Fiji. You've been to Fiji before? I've been to Fiji on holidays, yes. Had you been to Suva before? No, never. Yeah. What were your first impressions of Suva? It was hot, as I expected, humid, and it's a big main industrial city, really. I spent the first weekend, I arrived on a Saturday, I spent the first weekend just walking around and getting my bearings. It's busy. It's got most of the things that you need and that I would have expected to see in a city of that size. And then on Sunday, it's completely quiet and absolutely nothing happens because everybody is at church and with their family. That's so true. It's how it should be. <laughs> That's right. Exactly how it should be. Yep. It's not the tropical beach paradise that we keep seeing in all the postcards from Fiji. No, it's uh, there are no beaches in Suva. It's on the harbour, but uh, yes, there are no beaches. So. <laughs> I think it's quite eye-opening for people because we're so used to seeing all these picture-perfect postcards of Fiji and actually Suva looks That's right. completely different. Yes, like a big city, yes. <laughs> I take it you went into work in your early days there? Yes, that's right. What are your first impressions of the hospital and of the university? So I started on the Monday, arrived on the weekend and went up on the Monday morning. I was close enough to walk, which was one of my, I was very keen to be able to walk. Obviously, I didn't have a car. The hospital itself is big and and a little bit of a rabbit warren, which is common to many big hospitals. So the first place I went was the operating theatres and the sort of surrounding infrastructure. And they're reasonably well kitted out, actually. My most recent trips have been to Papua New Guinea, and I would say that Fiji is reasonably well resourced. So you're using things like propofol and sevaflurane? Yeah, small amounts of sevaflurane, but some. It became obvious that there were lots of drug shortages and drug emissions, some of which didn't make sense, but nobody seemed to know why they did or didn't have some things. But my first impression was actually it's reasonably well-resourced and reasonably well-staffed and probably better than I expected, really. Good, good. And so what was your workload like? Once I had my registration, I was working in theatres maybe three or four days a week. Wednesdays, so one day a week was teaching and that was for helping with tutorials and they asked me to do the pain tutorials as part of the diploma and the master's course, which I was very happy to do. And when you say teaching, this is out of theatre teaching in tutorial rooms rather than all the in-theatre teaching that you're doing? Yes, that's right. Sorry, yes. So the days in theatre were teaching like we do in Australia. And I think one of the comments that Meg made, which I think really summed up what we were there for was maybe modelling best practice is probably the best way of putting it. I think modelling is a very powerful way of teaching. Yeah, that's right. The trainees have limited supervision because the staffing is very light on from a consultant point of view. So they're doing lots and lots of things on their own and they often learn from the trainee before them or from their peers. So sometimes their practices would not be what I would consider to be necessarily appropriate. So, yeah, modelling best practice in theatre 
they're entirely capable. Most of them, they work long hours. <laughs> they do lots and lots of cases, lots of complicated cases. So it's not like they're not capable. But as I say, you learn to cut corners when you when you haven't had great supervision over a long period of time. Mm, that's so true. Yeah. And then the formal teaching was the tutorials on a Wednesday for the diploma and the master's students. Great. And one of the roles that you have over there is to prepare the students for their exams. That's correct. Were you there for the exam period itself? Yes. So actually they started their exams the day I finished. So it was perfect timing really. So I had the three months with them. We did heaps of exam practice. So short answers, vivas, investigations, tutorials, um, we did lots and lots of practice. The beginning of 2022 had been still quite disrupted in Fiji. So their course had been truncated a little bit. So they'd been trying to catch up on the theory. And so they'd missed out a little bit on the more practical aspects of the exam preparation. So we worked very hard to give them as much practice as we possibly could. And I have I sat the exams a long time ago. So I had to go back and relearn quite a few things, um, a few things up. So that was good for me. I think most of us would. Well, yes. So things that are buried deep in there somewhere. So yeah, we did heaps and that really ramped up and sort of weeks before the exams. So yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of it actually. Really, it was really enjoyable. It's good. It's good to have that little refresher. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I should, probably should do it more often. Yeah. And for people who don't know what their training program is like, can you just describe that? Yes. So the anaesthetic training program is four years. Most of the trainees come in having done quite a number of years as junior doctors. So they're relatively well experienced. Their first year is what's referred to as the diploma. It's a one year. It's almost like the GP anaesthetic course in a way, but they sit their exams at the end of that year and they end up with a diploma of anaesthetics. There's not a lot you can do with that though. So you really need to go on and do the next three years, which is the master's. At the end of the second year of the master's, they sit their exams. And in the third year and their final year of training, they're required to do quite a large project that they prepare for over the course of a year. And that's required to be presented at the end of their master's program, often at least initially at the Pacific Society of Anesthetists meeting, and then formally one or two months after that. And it's all run out of the Fiji National University rather than a college system that we have in Australia. Yes, that's right. So yes, while we, while the College of Anesthetists, Australian and New Zealand College of Anesthetists is responsible for our training, the Fiji National University is responsible for the training of the Fiji trainees and actually all the trainees from the Pacific come to Fiji to do their anaesthetic training. Apart from Papua New Guinea, there aren't any other anaesthetic training programs in the Pacific. Although a number of the trainees spend at least some time or some of them quite a lot of time in their home countries. As part of the university training program? Yes, they don't spend their whole time in Fiji, which is interesting from a volume of practice point of view, which mm. which I only realised towards the end of my time there. There's no formal quantification of the volume of practice. Maybe Most of them spend at least a year during their training in their home country, but their workloads often relatively smaller just because the populations are much smaller, obviously, and the acuity, a lot of the patients, uh, if they're very high acuity, are transferred out. That's changed from when I was there. It was almost all done at FNU. Uh, I wanted to ask about how life was out of work. 
Oh, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't spent that much time on my own for, yes, a very long time. So it was interesting to get used to the only responsibility being me and nobody else. I spent quite a bit of time just initially wandering around Suva and getting to know Suva. I'm quite happy to just entertain myself. I'm happy just to walk around and look in shops and things like walking through the supermarket. I think that gives you a lot of information about a place. Mm, I love it. I love walking through supermarkets overseas. I was lucky enough really to spend a bit of time outside of Suva. So I ended up being able to participate in a couple of the essential pain management courses. So I went to Latoka twice to do that. I went to Lambasa to do an EPM course. I did a little bit of traveling around just on my own, doing a trip on the river in a tire. I was able to entertain myself quite nicely. I went up to the mountains to Namosi, where there's a sort of an eco resort type thing. There were so many places I still have on my list of places to go to, but I feel as though I I had a great time exploring Fiji and getting to know it. Good, good, good. Did you have to do much in the way of after hours work? Yeah, so I didn't participate in the on-call roster at all. And I was quiet about that initially. And I know Meg Meg doesn't participate in the on-call roster. I didn't live that close. I suppose I could have stayed at the hospital, but actually in the end, I was quite glad that I didn't. I work reasonably hard at home and it was a nice opportunity to be able to really just teach, be in theatre obviously, but teach in theatre and teach and prepare for the teaching aspect of it rather than worrying so much about working hideous hours and being incredibly busy from a clinical point of view. Would you do any time in theatre by yourself without a trainee? So I did very little without a trainee and Meg was very keen for myself and there were two other fellows there at the time not to do anything without the trainees. She felt that it wasn't our job to be a service provider so I did very little on my own. I think that's been a long-standing ethos of having our involvement there. Yeah. I mean, I would have been happy to because, oh, my gosh, it's so busy and so understaffed and that wasn't what I was there for. I wasn't an employee of, of the Colonial War Memorial Hospital, so my role was really quite separate from that. But, yeah, I did feel very bad for them on many occasions because it's, yeah, it's very busy. <laughs> Yes. And then coming back home, some people describe things like reverse culture shock or a little <laughs> bit of a challenge getting back into modern Australian life. How did you find that? Yeah, I think I am eternally grateful for the Australian medical system. There are certainly deficiencies, don't get me wrong, but we are so lucky. We have access to excellent medical care, excellent facilities. We're relatively well staffed. Yeah, (laughs) makes you incredibly appreciative for what we have, which I think is one of the fantastic things about going overseas. I think I probably slotted back in reasonably easily. Fiji is just, I really enjoyed it though, and I, I certainly miss it and would love to go back. It sounds like you've had some more opportunity to go back as well since you've come back to Australia. I'm very much hoping to go back and do some more pain teaching one year. Oh, good. Um, And I think I'm hoping that might be an ongoing relationship, um, a work in progress. All right. Well, we'll watch that space. In terms of your time leading up to it, your whole time there coming home, what do you think has been the highlight or your favourite part of it all? I met some amazing people. Yeah, I think out of 
all the great things about the experience, meeting the trainees and the consultant anaesthetists who work in that environment, they are incredible practitioners. They work very hard. They work under very difficult circumstances. They do a great job. So I think, yeah, meeting meeting people, meeting some amazing people, that was the best mm. part of the whole experience really. 100%. I know some of the people that you would have worked with. Yeah. Oh, there's some truly, truly inspirational. Truly, truly wonderful people. Agreed. And the work was interesting. Some of it was like the things in Australia. Some of it was not. So mm. <laughs> some very interesting cases to be done in slightly different ways than I would do them here just because of the availability of resources that, that they don't have and we have the luxury of having access to. So Yeah, good point. It's a great place, some really lovely people. Good, agreed, lovely, lovely people. And in terms of challenges that you faced or things you might want to do differently or love to see changed for next time, you got any thoughts there? The one thing I was disappointed, and this is not the fellowship, it's I had an idea that I would like to, and they certainly encourage you to try and participate in a project or find a project to work with the trainees on or participate in sort of quality activities. And I was hoping that I might be able to use my pain knowledge, that's my sort of area, to develop something a little bit more concrete in the three months. But as it turned out, three months is so short. I hadn't Mm -hmm. really thought that through very carefully, particularly because the emphasis was on exam teaching, which was Absolutely fine. So the opportunities to potentially develop something a bit further in that space were a little bit limited. This is not a criticism at all. It's just that I think I hadn't really thought through the logistics of it and the pandemic. And the other thing is that the pandemic has had such a major impact on Fiji in so many ways that only became apparent as I tried to dive into where I could best use my skills. A lot of their processes had either stopped or they still hadn't returned to normal really in terms Mm. of their practicing. So they used to have a pain service and that had gone by the wayside and it hadn't really been reestablished or those plans to do that. There was focusing on getting back into some sort of normality. And so some of the Mm. extra bits that are nice additions, they're not essential, but they're nice additions. They just hadn't had time to focus on Perhaps, I don't know how you do it, but perhaps having just a bit of a better idea about what the current projects or the current areas of need are in the department. And then maybe you could start thinking about it a little bit before you went and then maybe hooking up with the main people involved in that particular project and getting something done within that time frame. But three months is very short. (laughs) I think you've highlighted, I'd lump them together in what's called health services strengthening. Just take a lot more time than people think. Planning ahead and starting with a needs assessment is often a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And it's often just luck, I think, whether something gets up and going within three months. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, so good points there. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about your time in Fiji or Pacific Fellowship? Yep. So I would highly recommend it. And I think that there is a place for people who are not strictly fellows At the Pacific meeting in September of last year, there were a number of consultants who'd come from Australia who I chatted to briefly who were interested that I'd been able to come and do the take the position 
And so I, maybe there'll be more applications from people who are a little bit more experienced. I don't want to take away from the fellows who are interested in doing it, but I think there is a role for people who are perhaps a little bit further out and in the early stages of establishing their careers. I think they still have a lot to offer, um, particularly if you have a specialty area that might be appropriate to work in that environment in. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. I had a great time. I learnt lots. I hope I taught something useful <laughs> and I'm hoping that I can establish some sort of ongoing relationship with the department um, in the future. That sounds great. And I back that 100%. And I think people at any stage of their career have something to offer, but particularly once you've had a few years as a consultant. Yeah. Provisional fellows clearly also have lots of things that they can offer as well. Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, that's been great. Thank you so much, Maura. Thank you for no, giving me a little update on your time in Fiji. It does sound truly wonderful. And I hope that you have a future relationship with the country and can continue to go back and contribute over there. I hope so too. And very grateful to the ASA, obviously, or even having the fellowship available in the first place. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Maura, for having this chat with me. For me, it was a really good trip down memory lane and it was also really good to see how much the training program has come along since I was there. If you want to hear more about Moira's experience as well as see some pictures from her time in Fiji, then I can direct you to the June 2023 edition of Australian Anaesthetist. That's our coffee table style magazine and it's just come out. So Australian Society of Anaesthetist members, you should receive a copy of it in your mailbox unless, of course, you've opted to go green in which case you can download the electronic copy. Non-members, you can also request a digital copy. The theme for this edition is pain, and as usual, it's a bumper edition with some really interesting articles. As I mentioned at the start, the ASA has a number of fellowship positions for provisional fellows as well as, and importantly, specialist anaesthetists, you're never too experienced, who are interested in volunteering in the region. There are three-month scholarships to Fiji and Timor-Leste, as well as a whole stack of other opportunities in places like the Solomons, Myanmar, Laos, and so on. The full details are available for members of the Australian Society of Anesis. You do need to log on, and it's because you need to be an ASA member in order to apply. The positions on offer do change over time, so I do encourage you to check in on that Global Health page to get the most up-to-date information, or even more exciting, to express interest in a Global Health position. Of course, I'll put links to all the relevant web pages in the show notes. While we're discussing global health, I want to mention a huge congratulations to Dr. Mandy Barrick, who has been one of our long-serving Overseas Development and Education Committee members. Dr. Barrick was recently awarded the Robert Orton Medal, which is the highest honour awarded by the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists. So congratulations, Mandy. She's also the only Australian recipient of the Mongolian Order of the Polar Star, which means that she joins the ranks of people like Barack Obama in terms of being an international civilian recipient of that award. If you want to hear more about Dr. Barrick's work in Mongolia, then I can recommend episode 50 of this podcast. That's episode 50, which you can find in your podcast library or on the ASA website. All right. I might leave you now to ponder what life might be like if you did move to somewhere like Fiji. Until next time, I hope you're going safe and well wherever your travels might take you. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. 
This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge, and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favourite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.